that day I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. And now hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 6, verses 35 to 40. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Please pray with, or sorry. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy towards us. We thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for the prophet Amos uh, and your work uh, pursuing your people Israel, uh, pursuing your people even now this morning. Uh, Father, may your word speak to us, soften our hearts. Uh, Some of us are excited to be here. Others of us are anxious. Others of us... Uh, just really wish we were anywhere other than in this room. Uh, we pray that your spirit um, would soften us, would help us to learn from your word, that we might see you, that we might seek you and live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're continuing our fall series looking at Jesus and the minor prophets, and today we come to Amos. Uh, Amos is is nine chapters. We read the last four verses. Um, But Amos, I'm willing to bet, is probably not your, like, go-to place when you need encouragement. Um, As we'll see, uh, what we read were really the only kind of four verses of hope in the book of Amos. The other uh, eight and a half chapters are really um, these sermons of judgment on Israel and on God's people. Uh, we don't know much about Amos. He was a shepherd uh, from the village of Tekoa, which was south of, of Judah. Um, but what we do know about Amos and the timing of it, this is probably written somewhere around 760 B.C. Uh, he's writing primarily to the northern kingdom uh, when, when Israel and, and Judah split. The Second Kings chapter 14 uh, through 15.7 are really kind of the, the scriptural background for this passage. So if you want to know what's going on in the life of Israel, you can look at those later on when you go home. Uh, what you need to know about this, this book is it's written to Israel in a time of great wealth and prosperity. They're thriving. Um, they're rich or getting richer, but what's also happening is they're really oppressing and mistreating the poor around them. Um, Uzziah is the king uh, in Judah, and Jeroboam is the king in the north. Um, Amos is writing primarily to 8th century Israel. 
Uh, but he's not just writing to the northern kingdom. He's writing to all of God's people across time and space. He's writing to us even this morning. Uh, as I said earlier, this, this is a book of judgment. It's not a really fun read um, if, you're, if you're looking for like some just great encouragement. Um, but what you come across is a holy God who loves his people who's faithful to them, even in the midst of their unfaithfulness. Uh, But what we see here, um, what we read this morning, is this great promise, uh, these great words of hope where God is promising that he is going to rebuild and he's going to restore his people, that their sin does not outweigh his grace, that his grace is more powerful. So Amos's main theme, if you want to sum it up, it's, it's God, it's He's foretelling God's just judgment um, on the people of Israel, on this wayward and wandering and wicked even people, um, who's going to be devastated by by the nation Assyria who's rising to power at this time, uh, who's going to drive them into exile away from their land. Amos is essentially telling God's people, judgment is coming. Follow me. Return to me. Seek me and live. He says that repeatedly in chapter 5. God is saying through Amos, be a part of what I'm doing. Uh, Be a part of what I'm doing in the world. It's going to lead to something greater than you can imagine. If you continue, God's people, if you continue seeking God your own way, it's going to lead you to places ultimately that you do not want to go. It's going to result in your exile. It's going to result in your death and your ultimate undoing. It's going to result in this famine of my word where you will seek me and you will not find me. What are you going to choose? Amos is telling God's people, the path that you're on, it's leading you somewhere. Where is it leading you? You're creating your own version of God and it's destroying you. It's destroying your relationships. It's destroying your cities. It's destroying your families. It's destroying your very heart. But the God of the Bible has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. The one true God who's pledged himself to his people. He's rescued his people from slavery and from darkness. And following him is the only way that we're going to find life at all. So Amos' call is return to me. Seek me and live. Now before we look at Israel and, and why God is bringing his judgment on his people We need to consider for a moment this contradiction that I think if many of us are honest, we feel when we come across passages, when we come across books like Amos. Uh, We like to pit God's judgment and his mercy against each other. Um, Read in in Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. This is where God describes himself to Moses. This is what he says. He says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So far, so good, right? Like, we can get behind that God. He's gracious, he's compassionate, he's forgiving, he's merciful. And then God continues. Uh, He says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. We don't really like that God. We don't really want that God to to go to work. We we don't really like the idea of of a judging, angry God. Um, 
there's many people who really love the idea of a forgiving and loving and gracious God, but who just absolutely reject the idea of a God who brings judgment. We really want a God of love, one who, um, when a God gets angry, uh, when evil destroys the creation that he made, the creation that he loves, we think it's not loving at all. But the reality is, um, if you love someone, not only will you get angry if someone threatens to destroy them, you have to. I mean, think about it with our own children. Someone threatens my daughter, I'm going to go after them. Like, that's the one scene in Ransom, I don't just sidebar, the one scene in Ransom that doesn't make sense to me. I was watching it, I was like a middle schooler, uh, when Mel Gibson, his son, is attacked and is, is held hostage, and he finds the attacker, and he has him pinned in the street. Like, the one untrue thing about that movie is that he just doesn't keep punching him until that man is done, right? Like, that, you catch the person who is taking your child, you're going to go after him. Unless, unless we have a God who punishes sin, unless we have a God of judgment. Um, Tim Keller says it this way. He says, you have to have had a pretty comfortable life without any experience of oppression and injustice yourself to not want a God who punishes sin. Miroslav Volf, uh, a Christian writer and thinker who grew up in war-torn Croatia, um, who saw Genesis for, or genocide firsthand in his country, he writes this. He says, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that we should desire a God who refuses to judge. But in a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, such an idea will invariably die. So, if God really is God then he has to punish evil. The fact that he shows mercy and, judge, and, and forgiveness at all is really the deep mystery of faith. Mercy and judgment are not at odds in the character of God. Um, he's simultaneously infinitely loving, infinitely gracious, and infinitely just, and he does not allow sin to go unpunished. And so why does he have to punish sin? He wouldn't be perfectly good if he didn't, if he overlooked evil and just said, that's okay. He wouldn't be a good God at all. And yet we still experience, if we're honest, when we come to passages, to books like Amos, we still experience this internal conflict and this contradiction. And we think, okay, either God's perfectly just, so he only is going to love people who obey the law perfectly, and the way we get to heaven is by being, living this completely exemplary moral life, and we have to be completely good all the time. Or God's perfectly loving, and his word and his commands don't really matter at all because he's ultimately going to overlook all of the sin and all of the wickedness that should be punished. So it doesn't really matter how I live. God's going to forgive me. But the God of the Bible... The God that we come into contact with here in Amos, ultimately in the person of Jesus, does not allow us to pit God's mercy and judgment against one another. They both flow simultaneously from the goodness and holiness of his character. So, why is God bringing judgment upon Israel? Well, Israel's history, they're in a covenant relationship with God. They've said in Exodus 24, in the book of Deuteronomy, Everything that the Lord has said, we will do it. They were supposed to worship God and God alone according to his word that he lays out for them um, in the Old Testament scripture. 
Uh, they're supposed to worship him with an integrity of their heart, with a living faith that's coupled with moral obedience. They're to respond fully to the grace and to the law of God, living out the, the, the law in a life of obedience, and they're to fully love God and to fully love their neighbor at all times. They're designed to hear, to receive, to take in, to be shaped by the word of God, to let it direct them. And God's word is, is supposed to drive them to live these beautiful lives of moral and faithful obedience, reflecting the God who made them, reflecting the God who saves them, reflecting the God who loves them, and their dealings with those around them. They're supposed to be honest. They're supposed to have integrity. They're supposed to be faithful and considerate and care for the poor and the needy. That's what it meant to be an Old Testament follower of God, and Israel knew this. They knew that if they failed to keep their end of the covenant, that it would invite God's just judgment on them, that he could take them away from their land. He could take them away from the promise of their land and send them into exile, send them away from him, that he would allow them to experience the, the disfruit, if you will, of their rejection of him and his word. God's people have always supposed to embrace the covenant from their heart. And if they didn't, it would result in God bringing judgment upon them. And for 200 years at this point, God's people have been silencing him. They've been silencing his prophets. They've been silencing his word. They've been rejecting him and his ways. Now, they worship a lot. We read in, in Amos, they, they worship a lot, but it's not according to God's standards. It's not according to how he has called them to. They ceremoniously offer sacrifices but their hearts are really far from God. They reject the place that God has called them to worship in Jerusalem. They set up their own places for worship, despite the Lord's instructions to them not to do that. You know, they're seeking after God, but really it's only for their own purposes. It's only to build up um, and, and, and to have God rubber stamp, basically, and to justify their own selfish lives, their own self-pleasing, their lives of prosperity and affluence that they're after. So if you flip back to, to chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, uh, we hear this. Um, God calls his people. He says, hear this word, people of Israel. The word of the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth, Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Even though they've been chosen, they've been loved, they've been pursued by God, they, they are the only nation that has this special covenantal relational love with God. They've rejected him outright, and they've become just like all the nations around them. Chapter 2, verse 12 says that you've commanded the prophets not to prophesy. God is saying, you've silenced me. You've silenced those I've sent to you. They're like the people in Damascus who received judgment in chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. They treat people as things to be used, as things to be used for your own personal advantage. And in 2, 6, and 7, Israel, we read about them. It says, they sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. They're pursuing, at this time in Israel's history, their own satisfaction by following a plan for life that's selfish, that's self-serving, that has nothing to do with God and his character. 
And they're assuming that they could gather in God's presence, that they can go before him in worship and not be changed by him. We saw when Isaiah prophesies, we saw when he comes into contact with God, he's changed. God's people at this time, they're going to God and they don't really care. They thought that his pledged presence with them and his companionship with them were guaranteed no matter how faithless they were. They thought their material wealth and their success were actually blessings from God, and when in reality it's more like um, Romans 1 when Paul says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, therefore God gave them over to their shameful lusts and let them have the things that they wanted as a form of judgment. God's people here are corrupt in all of their business dealings. They cheat, they lie, they mistreat, they oppress the poor, They're not reflecting the heart of God at all. The God who saved them, the God who calls them, the God who loves them, the God who rescued them when they were being oppressed in Egypt. So after hearing all that, we have to ask ourselves, where do we reject God? Where do we decide, listen, God, I don't care what you really have to say about this. I'm going to decide what's good. I'm going to decide what's right. I'm going to decide what's true. You know, where in your life do you hear God's word to you and you just say, no, I'm not doing it. It's not happening. You know, how how do we know deep down that we're really right with God? Can we credibly believe that he's on our side? You know, are we wrapped up in worship? Are we wrapped up in religious things to get something from God? Um, Are we trying to be so good and moral and upright that we're trying to get God to owe us something? One of the ways you can tell that is, um, you know, if if you look at God and you say, listen, I've done all these things. You're like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. I've done all these things, and you're not giving me what I want. And so I'm out. I want nothing to do with you. I wish you were dead. Um, When we do that, when we respond to God that way, we're not really worshiping him at all. We might look really good on the outside. We might look like we're really faithful. But if we're doing it just to get something from God, we're really just after the something. That really is our God, whether it's success or power or love or comfort or relationships, um, our own way. You know, that really has become our God. Another way to think about um, what Israel is going through here is, is this. You know, what really drives your heart? You know, what do you worship deep down? What taps into the core of who you are and the core of your being? What brings you peace? And then what deeply unsettles you? Amos is pressing us here when anything other than the word of God is given the supreme place in our hearts, so much so that we base our lives completely around it, then it really becomes a lie, and it becomes a source of lies in our lives. Then the thing that we're worshiping is really what we're after. When we have it within our grasp and we're really, it's, it's close to us, we're really, we feel built up and we feel safe. But when it gets threatened, we feel really unsettled and discouraged and hopeless. So what are you worshiping this morning? Is it leading you to flourishing? Is it leading you to reflect God's character, his kindness, his compassion, his forgiveness, his holiness, his care for the needy and the hurting around you? Or is it leading you to turn inward, 
to focus only on yourself to even to the point to where you treat those around you as objects in your way, as just hurdles, as non-image bearers, and you look down on those who aren't as good, who don't have it all together, who, who aren't as successful as you are. The people of God in Amos' day, they've gotten complacent with him in their relationship. They're entitled in their relationship with God, and they've fallen asleep in the comfort of their privileged position as God's rescued and loved people, and they're in desperate need, as I think many of us might be as well, of being jolted awake into an awareness that the only assured certainty of the possession of the, their privileged status as God's love and chosen people is evidenced in a life that's committed without reserve to being holy as God is holy. This is why Amos opens his book with the Lord roaring like a lion from Jerusalem. It says in chapter 1, he roars like a lion from Zion. That's why in chapter 3, verse 12, one of the most like visual disturbing pictures of judgment that's brought before us. God says this. This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd rescues from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites living in Samaria be reduced. It doesn't sound like much rescue there, having two bones and a piece of an ear being all that's left of God's people. That's what the, the judgment is coming on them. That is going to be the result there. This is why God promises to destroy the houses and the altars of the false worship, to, uh, to destroy their opulent homes built with ivory in their ma- mansions. God isn't promising judgment and devastation here flippantly. He's waited patiently for years and years, calling out to his people, inviting them to return to him. He's disciplined them in the past, chapter 4 tells us, and the people still do not return to him in repentance. He says repeatedly in chapter 5, seek me and live. In the, in the first parts of chapter 1 and chapter 2, when, when the oracles of judgment are coming down on the nations and on Judah and Israel, he says for three sins of whoever, even four, This means that God has been extremely patient with his people. He's been extremely patient with his world. This is not a just angry God looking for vengeance. This is a God who is patient, who's dealing with a stubborn people who refuse time and again to return to him. And what we see, if you read through the book of Amos, like I said, it's only nine chapters. It won't take you very long. Is what we see is this is a God who speaks. This is a God who's relational over and over again. You read, this declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is what the Lord your God says. This God is not silent. He loves his people. and He speaks to them. He's present with them. And he's continually calling them, follow me, return to me. And yet they continue to reject him. Amos also tells us that that this God is a God of justice. He doesn't overlook those who are being oppressed, those who are being mistreated. He sees them. He cares for them. He comes and and wants to rescue them. He sees the wickedness of his people, and he says, enough. This is unjust. This is not who I am. These are not my ways. This is going to come to an end. 
God is showing us here through Amos that the evils of this world will not go on forever. He one day will return to make all things new, to get rid of death and injustice and sin and pain and evil ultimately forever. That is coming. But also, this is a God of sincerity as well. In chapter 5, 21 to 23, God says this, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. This God does not delight in empty worship. He doesn't find joy. He doesn't find glory in his people simply just going through the motions. He wants nothing to do with that. In fact, he calls it a stench to him. And the result of that stench in chapter 8 is a spiritual famine. Amos says in chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, where I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. What we need to know here, anytime we come into contact with these judgment passages, with this idea here of this spiritual famine, judgment for God's people is never the end of the story. It is not the end of the story. God is not saying, I'm removing my love from you. I'm removing my favor from you. I'm going to destroy you completely. If you don't want to have anything to do with me, that's fine. I don't want to have anything to do with you either. That's not what this God is doing. That's not who this God is. We read about the promise of hope that finishes the book in in chapter 9, verses 11 to 15. Judgment for God's people is never the end of the story. God doesn't bring this judgment and this devastation just for fun just because, or because he's petty or because he's just tired and he's worn out. It's a purging, really, of his people to reveal those that truly love him, to reveal those who truly embrace the covenant from the heart. This God always preserves a remnant. He doesn't forget his promises. He doesn't abandon them. He doesn't give up on them. So as surely as the judgment is coming for Israel— so is this promise of hope that we read about in chapter 9. God says he will restore David's fallen shelter, and he will rebuild it as it used to be. The days are coming, he says, when new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the cities and live in them, and I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I've given them. Thus says the Lord your God. The basis for this promise is the final words here of this chapter. It's the only time Amos actually says it. Thus says the Lord, your God. He's your God. He's faithful to you. He has committed himself to you. He has promised he will not leave you. He will not forsake you despite your wickedness, despite your rebellion, despite your faithlessness. He keeps his promises even when we don't. Because you are his. He is your God. He's pledged himself to you. and He promises he will not give up on you because he's holy. 
because he's perfect, because he's good, because he's merciful, and because he's just, he will not fail in keeping his promises to rescue his people and to not leave you for destruction. And this, in chapter 9 here, is where we see Jesus just bursting through the pages of Amos. Jesus is, is the end to that promised famine that we read about in chapter 8. God delivers this, prom- this prophecy through Amos that a spiritual famine is coming where the people are really getting exactly what they want, really exactly what they've asked for. They wanted to rush past God, ignore him, silence him, to get their own agendas, to get their own preferences and purposes because they really deep down think that there's a better way for them apart from God and who he is and what he has for them. So God allows them to experience his silence They're going to go into exile. They're going to be driven from their homes. They're going to go into Assyria. And then in the intertestamental period, we have 400 years of silence. God does not speak for 400 years. And then John 1, chapter 1 begins, The word of the Lord became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus came to end the famine of God's word and to bring the bread of heaven that we read about in in John chapter 6 where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. That means that this Jesus is the only place where we are going to find life. He alone is the only place where we're going to find value and significance. When we feast on him, the meaningless, the helplessness, the wandering that we experience day in and day out apart from him are over. We're a people that, if we're honest, I think are really famished for significance. And what Jesus tells us in John chapter 6 is, I am the place where you will find life. I am the place where you will find significance. It's only in me. It's not in your jobs. It's not in the success um, around you. It's not in your relationships. It's not in your marriages. It's not in, in having all the right stuff. It's not in getting the right promotion. It's not in getting the perfect grades. It's not in making this team. It's not in having the perfect kids. It's not in having the right house or the right car or whatever that thing is. None of it will bring us lasting significance. None of it will bring us life. Only Jesus himself, the Lord of heaven and earth, is able to answer and to fill that deep need within us, that longing for life and significance and meaning. So as we look back at chapter 9, the promise of hope that we read about here, we see it's fulfilled in every way in Jesus' coming. Chapter, or verse 11, the booth of David being raised up, it's fulfilled in Jesus Amos is getting at here is this, this idea that the, the act of God is, is going to bring a king whose reign will work as the mediator between God and man, and it's going to be fully acceptable to the Lord, and his presence is going to bring safety and refreshment to the world. That is what Jesus brings to us. Jesus comes that we may have life, and that we may have it to the full, He's the perfect king, the righteous ruler, the only one who is perfect all the time, every time. He only does that which the Father desires, we read about in Scripture. He's the perfect mediator. 
He takes all of our sin on the cross, on himself, and he trades places with us. And when we come to him in faith, trusting in his finished work on the cross, in his life and death and resurrection, we get all that is true about Jesus. We get his perfect righteousness, his love, his humility, his grace, and his kindness. Those things become true about us. Jesus is the perfect mediator, and Hebrews tells us that he lives and reigns in heaven even right now, and he's living day in and day out to intercede on your behalf. Jesus spends his days praying for you. That's how intimately he is involved in your life. He loves you, and he has come for you. And then verse 12 continues, um, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. What you need to know about Edom is that they were a symbol of the like, embodiment of the hostility of the world towards God and his purposes. Um, so here, the overthrow of Edom, um, it speaks to a real and a complete end to the opposition of God in, in the coming years and to, and to his purposes. But the purpose here isn't for just the overthrow of Edom, but it's on their incorporation into the people of God. Here, God is promising that the Gentiles, those outside of Israel, those people like you and me, those people who are hostile to God, will be, as Ephesians 3 tells us, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. James in Acts 15 quotes this verse here to declare to the council at Jerusalem that the Gentiles were equals in their membership and their access of God's people. So what God is telling us here is that he's making a people for himself. And that people is going to be from every nation and every tribe and every tongue. And the only way that we access, we, we get access to this people is through his grace and through coming to this King Jesus. And then we read verse 13, the earth will yield a lavish and a spontaneous abundance. This is a reversal of the creation groaning when sin enters the world and creation groans, we read in Romans. Um, this, all of creation is going to be freed. All of creation is going to explode in beauty and praise. This is going to happen when Jesus returns. This is where we're heading to a time that's better than Eden to a time where we will we'll be in perfect relationship with each other, perfect relationship with God, and perfect relationship with the world around us. And this is going to happen when Jesus returns. It is as sure as the judgment that came upon Israel. And then in verse 14, we see the reverse of God's judgment that we read about in chapter 5. You didn't read about it. I read about it this week. You can go back and look at it. Um, in chapter 5, verse 11, Though you've built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you've planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. In chapter 5, the sin of God's people has frustrated their lives. It's frustrated their aims. But Amos looks forward to the day when the power of sin will be destroyed completely, where we'll live in homes, we'll drink the, the fruit of the vineyard. Amos promises a time when disappointment, when frustration will be over. It will be gone, and we will enjoy life with one another and with God, where our plans will not be thwarted anymore because we're only going to desire that which God has for us. We're only going to pursue him and his goodness because sin will ultimately be gone. Our hopes will no longer be misplaced. Our hopes will be placed solely on him. And then lastly, in verse 15, we read that the land will be theirs forever. 
why is it going to be theirs? Because the, they will be one time and for all free of the penalty of sin. They cannot be robbed of their inheritance. The penalty of sin has been lifted for God's people. And if we are Jesus' people, we will never again feel the weight of it. Jesus took the penalty for all of our sin, and this is what Amos is pointing us towards. This is a reality to which we are headed as God's people. This isn't a wish. This is a sure promise. It is, comes from the lips of God here. This is the word from your God. We are headed towards a place where sin's presence, where sin's power, where sin's penalty will have been forever removed from the scene where abundance and satisfaction and life and wholeness and security will be the order of the day. And we know this is true because this is a promise from your God. Now this hope is found beyond the devastation of God's people in judgment and in exile, but it's found only through the devastation of Jesus on our behalf. Jesus comes into the world He's rejected. He's despised. Even though he lived a perfect life and he did only that which pleased the Father, he's torn apart as that sheep and the lion's clutches that we read about in chapter 3. He endured the totality of God's wrath and judgment on behalf of his people because we could not endure it. Because he loved us, he was torn apart, he was rejected, he was cast out. The Father turned his face away from him so that when we come towards him in faith and repentance, we only receive his welcome, we only receive his song, we only receive his smile. We are welcomed in as children and we are promised that we receive his forgiveness and his love and his joy. When we feast on Jesus as he calls us to in John chapter 6, when we feast on the bread of heaven, we are found secure in him. We cannot, we will not be lost because he promises that he will lose none of those the Father gives him. If you are trusting in Jesus, that means all of God's punishment for your sin has been taken out on Jesus. Romans 8.1 says, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's none left for you. It's all gone. He's taken every bit of it. Now, all you have is his love and his grace. Sometimes we're disciplined, but we don't receive punishment. We don't receive exile. We don't receive God's judgment. We receive his fatherly discipline. You cannot be driven out. You cannot experience the spiritual famine because if you are feasting on Jesus, he promises you will never go hungry. You will never be thirsty again because you are safe and secure in me. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he creates for himself a people that love him, that love the things that he loves and reflect the light of his truth and bring the righteousness and the grace of his heart to the world around us. May we, as God's people this morning, turn towards Jesus this day, turn toward Jesus every day, and hear the words of Amos, to seek him and to live. So let's seek him together now as we turn towards this table to feast on the one that promises to satisfy, that promises to save us and to secure us forever for himself because he took the judgment that we deserved. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you that you love us 
Uh, we thank you for your word, even though it's confusing and it's difficult to wrap our minds around. Uh, we sometimes don't like a God of judgment, um, but we're thankful that you are, that you don't let sin go unpunished. Um, we're thankful that you didn't punish us for our sin, but you took it out on Jesus so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be made yours, so that we could be rescued and we could know your grace. Father, help us to feast on you at this table. It's in Christ's name that we come. Amen.